The Moderna vaccine has been authorized for emergency use. How is it similar to the Pfizer vaccine and how is it different? We'll talk about that and a lot more next on Locked on Pharmacy. You are listening to the Locked on Pharmacy podcast, the insider's view into the world of pharmacy. Hello, this is Frank Fortin with the American Pharmacists Association. America now has two vaccines to fight COVID-19. On December 18th, the FDA authorized the emergency use of the Moderna vaccine exactly one week after granting the same to the vaccine developed by Pfizer and BioNTech. There's some other news too. The Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, or ACIP, has issued its recommendations for the next two phases of vaccine allocation. There's a lot to talk about, and I've asked Michael Hogue and Steve Forster to join us again to discuss it. Michael is president of APHA and a member of a working group of healthcare leaders that has been advising CDC on the rollout of the vaccine. Stephen Foster is a member of ACIP and has served as a faculty member at the University of Tennessee School of Pharmacy and as a captain with the U.S. Public Health Service. Michael and Steve, welcome back to the program. It's been a very busy week as the previous week was. Michael, let's start with you. Uh, the Moderna vaccine, how is it similar to the Pfizer vaccine and how is it different? Thanks, Frank. Appreciate you having us on today. Um, there are several things uh, with the Moderna vaccine, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine that are the same. First of all, the efficacy is roughly the same, about 95%. Um, uh, th these are both messenger RNA vaccines. They both work essentially the same way in the body, but to say that is to also have to say that they're not interchangeable. So if you start the vaccine, uh, vaccinating a patient with one product, you've got to stick with that product for the, the full two-dose series. The uh, Pfizer vaccine, we uh, reconstitute and uh, uh, give two doses that are 21 days apart, and the CDC has given us some guidance on what 21 days means and how we can uh, be down to 17 days on the low end, but uh, uh, 21 days is optimal. It's very important. With the Moderna vaccine, we're not reconstituting. It's actually already uh, at its full strength with no reconstitution in the vial. Uh, the vaccine um, has to be administered, however, in 28-day intervals, so very important that uh, when you're managing both of these vaccines in the same practice that you have all these details down. Another big difference is the amount of the dose, the volume of the dose. The Pfizer vaccine is 0.3 ml dose. The Moderna vaccine is a 0.5 ml dose that you're drawing up into the syringe. So again, there are a lot of differences in that regard, even though the two vaccines essentially work the same. And then the last thing I would mention to your listeners, Frank, is that uh, the freezing temperature and, and the variability in temperature, very important to note these things. So Pfizer vaccine, as everyone is well aware by now, is a minus 70 degree uh, centigrade uh, vaccine that once thawed um, can be kept in the refrigerator for about five days. But then uh, if it's brought out into room temperature, it has to be used within six hours or discarded. Uh, the Moderna vaccine, on the other hand, is a good bit different. It's shipped at a frozen temperature of about minus 20 to minus 25 degrees centigrade. When it arrives in your pharmacy, you can actually store it for 30 days at a refrigerated temperature uh, as long as you've not punctured that vial. 
Uh, if you bring the vial out to room temperature, it can sit on your countertop for up to 12 hours as long as you've not punctured the top of the vial. But once you start withdrawing the first dose out of that vial, because there are no preservatives in the vial, you have to discard it within six hours. You cannot refreeze the vaccine and you can't save leftover vaccine or partial vials for another time. You've got to use them up. So that's very important to know. So again, uh, a good bit of differences in terms of vaccine management at this, at, um, in terms of what you're gonna do at your practice site with these two vaccines. And if you happen to have both vaccines, just be very, very careful so we don't have vaccine errors occurring. Can I add to that too? And by the way, thank you for, for having us here. What, uh, what Michael just said is very true. However, if you screw up, they're not re recommending that you go back and repeat the dose or because of the shortage of vaccine and because of the number of people we need protection. So it is very important that, for example, if you if you give one dose, uh, one vaccine for the first dose and you accidentally give the second one, no, you don't do anything. You just let it go. But you you have potentially not protected the patient. We don't know because there's no studies on that. The other thing, too, is if you give it too early, again, you don't go back and repeat it um, because we have a shortage of vaccine. So it's really important that we take our time and uh, and really be careful with what we do. Steve, let me ask you. Thank you. Let me ask you the ne next question. It's been a fair amount of attention to the uh, allergic reactions that have uh, followed the administration of the Pfizer vaccine. Can you tell us about what the gui current guidance is for for each of the vaccines when it comes to uh, watching for and um, reacting to allergic reactions? Well, most of the reactions that we're hearing, the anaphylactic reactions in particular, what we're hearing out of the news, uh, is under close investigation by the by the both the FDA and the CDC. They're they're really evaluating these situations, but they're not changing their recommendations right at the moment. The recommendations are if you uh, have had a previous uh, reaction, anaphylactic reaction to an ingredient of the vaccine, a different maybe it was a, a peg ingredient that was from a different vaccine, then no, you should not get it. But just because you've had anaphylaxis in the past, that is not a reason not to get the vaccine. The guidance that goes along with this, though, is that if you've got someone who's highly allergic, and, and they're not going to say uh, specifics what that means, it's up to your clinical judgment on this, but, but you should observe them for 30 minutes. Now, they are recommending that everybody gets observed for 15 minutes, and that may mess up a lot of people's plans for social distancing. They say watch everybody for 15 minutes. And obviously, if you, these uh, anaphylactic type reactions that they've, they've noted have occurred within the first 15 minutes. So it's important that we, uh, we do watch that. But if you've got someone that is, has had an allergic reaction in the past to something, an anaphylactic reaction in particular, not so much allergic per se, but anaphylactic, then yes, what you should do is we have them observe for 30 minutes. So what this guidance seems to suggest is that the uh, scenes we've seen um, over the past few months of people lining up by the hundreds at say Dodger Stadium or something like that for testing, we're really not going to be able to do that for the for the vaccination. We don't. You know what? This is going to be something that's going to be discovered as we go along. Um, we have no clue. We've not been in this situation since probably polio. Um, and so we don't have a clue as to how this is going to come. The, the only guidance I can say is we're going to figure this out as we go along. It's probably going to be figured out at a local level. And uh, all we can do is the best we can do. You know, Frank, I could just almost come and also comment on this. I mean, 
Um, I've been working in uh, COVID vaccine clinics for the last several days, uh, and uh, the way we've managed this, of course, is to is to provide lots of chairs in our vaccination area. Um, that's something that uh, I realize in a community-based pharmacy, there'll be limited space for that. But for hospital pharmacies, you got to have a space big enough where you can sit people down. Um, we have had some people who've had a history of allergic reactions to IV contrast dye and various other things. And we require them to sit for an extra 30 minutes or for 30 total minutes. Um, we have observed no uh, uh, vaccine um, adverse reactions so far, having given our first 3,000 doses. But, um, you know, I think that uh, what Steve says is right. There's, there's a lot that we're having to feel our way through here that's new and we're being cautious. But it illustrates the reason why the CDC's vSafe app is so important. And we really want to have pharmacists promote the vSafe app to their patients every time. There's a nice QR code right on the sheet that the CDC's provided. You know, have your patient pull their telephone out and activate that QR code right there at the point of care before they leave your pharmacy. And while they're sitting there waiting, they can pass the time away by filling out the vSafe information on that app. And then, wow, before you know it, their 15 minutes is up and they're out. And then you know they're signed up for vSafe. And that is a wonderful thing to do to make sure we can continue to track adverse events. And the initial, the really initial, Experience with VSafe is only about two thirds of the people are actually getting signed up. So um, we would like to see much more than that. Steve, um, there's been some attention paid to uh, um, recommendations for uh, women who are pregnant or planning to become pregnant. What is the uh, what is the recommendation at at this point in time? I'll say it real quickly. We have no experience in this. It was not included in the studies. There ha- I shouldn't say no experience because there was women that got pregnant during the studies, and again. Uh, they haven't completed uh, their pregnancy so far, um, and there's a few details on 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 a, that I'm not even going to go into that because they did discuss this whole thing. The bottom line is the fact that pregnancy um, uh, causes an increased illness with COVID if you catch it, uh, increased risk of of uh, early um, delivery, and so because of that, pregnant women are recommended to get vaccinated. Sort of a classic benefits outweigh the risk, the, the risks situation. Correct, Michael. What do we know about the vaccine's ability to prevent transmission at this point? I understand that in the Moderna test there was some uh, data suggesting uh, positively that it may be helpful. Well, this is uh, something that we all hope for. I mean, what what your hope is, uh, if we had a perfect vaccine, what we would hope for is that not only would we prevent illness in the individual and prevent hospitalization and death, but we would also prevent that ability, the ability of that person to carry um, uh, the virus and to transmit the virus to someone else. Um, it's it's one thing to keep you from getting sick. It's another thing to keep other people from getting sick uh, because of your good vaccination efforts. Um, Pfizer didn't present any data at all about this in, uh, at the request. The FDA did request if they had any information. Pfizer declined to provide any information. Moderna did provide information to the FDA. But I will say it's very limited information. So it's hopeful. What I would say is that that Moderna presented information that was hopeful, that following dose one, there was a reduction, not an elimination, but a reduction in the number of cases that were transmissible 
transmission transmission cases that occurred in vaccine recipients after dose one. Uh, lots of problems with the way this was designed. It was a small number of people. Uh, it was a small number of cases, not enough to meet um, statistical significance, uh, but it was suggestive that perhaps the vaccine may help uh, prevent transmission of illness. At this point, it's such a huge question mark that we still are going to tell everyone, uh, regardless, if you're vaccinated, you still need to wear a mask, uh, still need to maintain social distance, uh, you still need to follow all of those normal infection control processes because as transmission rates are high in the community, you could become a vector for transmitting the disease even though you're fully vaccinated. We just don't know yet. We're hopeful and we hope Moderna will go ahead and collect more data and have the higher, you know, higher powered studies so that we'll be able to, to answer this thing definitively. But you know, I think we're probably still many months away from having the answer to that question. Let's talk about when, by the time these vaccines get into community pharmacies, um, uh, first quarter, second quarter of next year, whenever that happens, will pharmacies be getting multiple products? Will they be getting just one? How is that going to work to the best of your knowledge? Well, let me, let me just comment on that real quickly. I want to acknowledge the fact that in some, uh, while the initial supplies were, uh, were targeted at healthcare workers generally, very broadly, that's what, um, uh, that's what we was part of the 1A recommendations from the uh, CDC. And uh, many state health departments chose to execute that by shipping the Pfizer product initially directly to hospitals. And so what happened is that for across the country, for the most part, hospitals received the doses, the initial shipments of doses in uh, phase 1A. However, that was not completely the case in every state. For example, I'm aware that in Alabama, there were three pharmacies that act, community-based pharmacies that actually received part of the initial shipment of the Pfizer vaccine. And um, they will be immunizing referred healthcare providers in the community because there were, these are healthcare providers who were not connected with a hospital practice. So I want to acknowledge that there are some pharmacies, community pharmacies that did receive the Pfizer vaccine because they had the storage capacity and were able to maintain it. Um, it is possible that pharmacies will receive both products and have to manage the differences between both products and be very careful with this because uh, at least with the initial supplies that are being sent out until vaccine volume, uh, production volume has really increased pretty substantially, the, the supply that pharmacies will be getting will largely come from the state health department as part of the state's plans for immunizing. When the volume is large enough to ensure that there's equity in distribution across the country, then the CDC has indicated that at that point, they will begin a direct pharmacy distribution strategy through the contracts that were established with the chain pharmacies, both big national chains and local regional chains, as well as the independent pharmacy buying groups. And at that point, when they can be equitable in the distribution so that uh, rural areas and urban areas and everybody in between can get vaccine, then it'll get out to um, the community pharmacy level. But which product they get and how much they get of each and whether they just get one or both products is, is completely up in the air and dependent almost entirely on the supply of vaccine that's available uh, with uh, combined with the storage um, uh, facilities that a pharmacy has. 
This may not be a fair question, but is there any sense as to when this moment of equity might be arriving? I would just be guessing, but my my thought is, is that it's likely going to be mid to late January before we see that happen, just simply because um, it's going to take a while to get our frontline workers and long-term care facility residents immunized. I mean, you're talking about you know, 23 million people roughly in that tier 1A. And and that's not just 23 million doses. I mean, you're talking about that's 46 million doses of vaccine if every single person in that group got vaccinated. So the production of 46 million doses is going to take a while. And uh, maybe by the end of January, they say that there may be 50 million doses. So I think we may be end of January, early February before we see more widespread distribution of the vaccine into other healthcare providers like pharmacies and uh, doctors' offices. The other thing that goes along with that is the fact that the the it's very much a local decision when to go from phase one A to phase one B because if if they get everybody in the phase one A vaccinated locally or everybody that's willing to get vaccinated. Uh, because we know not everybody's going to want to get the vaccine out of that group, then it's up to their decision to say, hey, we've, we're now caught up. Um, we can go on. What what the kind of guidance they gave is that when the demand is less than the capacity, then that's when you should go to the next phase. So it, it should vary throughout the country. Well, since you brought it up, and uh, Steve, you're, you're on the committee that made the recommendations for phases 1B and 1C. Um, could you provide a summary of what the committee recommended and presumably will be approved by CDC proper? And and again, these are guidances to the community, to the local. It's not necessarily right. a law. This is because every 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 state has had to submit their own plan to do that. Um, we've already uh, discussed uh, the phase 1A, which was the healthcare providers and long-term care facilities. Uh, as it's between 23 and 24 million people, as we talked about. Um, the next, what we actually looked at was phase 1B and phase 1C. And phase 1B, what was decided uh, yesterday, in fact, was the fact that uh, the frontline essential workers should be within this group. That's estimated to be about, um, about 30 million people. Um, these include people like the first responders, educators, food and agricultural people, uh, manufacturing, corrections people, the postal service, public transit, grocery stores, these types of, of essential workers. Uh, along with that group then, uh, and this was, there was a lot of discussion on this, is that it was decided that the, uh, when they looked at the people, um, at, oh, the aged people, I'm going to be real careful how I say that because I am one, the, uh, <laughs> the decision was that they would vaccinate those over the age of 75. And there was a lot of discussion about the 65 to 75 age group, but at least for 1B, for the over 75 uh, people, that's about 19 million people in the U.S. For the frontline essential people, it's about 30 million based on these decisions. Uh, you have to keep in mind, there are overlaps between essential and healthcare workers and, and over 75 and healthcare workers, but roughly the 49 million people for phase 1B. Um, and so that's the next group. The other thing that we decided upon was the phase 1C, the recommendations for that. That did include the over 65, so the 65 to 74 uh, years of age group, uh, roughly estimated at about 28 million people. That also included those between the age of 16 and 64 years with high-risk medical conditions, uh, roughly 81 million people. So you can see it really is a big jump at that point. And then other essential workers, uh, and that's a difficult 
you know, it's, it's up to the local decision who's essential and who's not, but, but that's roughly another 20 million people for 129 million total in group 1C. Uh, so that's a, that's a very large, so it's going to be a while before we get to that particular supply. And as, as Michael was saying earlier, uh, the numbers that they gave us was that by the end of December, there will be 20 million people vaccinated. Now, they did not say completely vaccinated. They just said vaccinated. So I'm assuming that's doses. Um, and then January, another 30 million. And then by February, another 50 million. That's what they're expecting as far as distribution goes. And I want to point out to our listeners that in the uh, show notes on the webpage of the Pharmacy Podcast Network, we'll have links to all these so that you can go back and look at them and print them out and share with your coworkers or uh, to talk about that. Okay. Frank, um, can I just uh, could I interrupt and just also add one important point, uh, and that is that uh, if people wonder how did you come to this determination, how did ACIP decide who was in one B and one C in terms of essential workers? It's largely based upon who's able to socially distance and, um, uh, and, and work from home versus work in the front lines. And so that 1B group are people who oftentimes can't uh, socially distance. They don't have the luxury of being able to do that. Uh, they don't always have the right protective equipment. And yet they have to be right there on the front lines all the time. So it's not an absolute line, but, but that's a large part of how those two districts groups were distanced apart and uh, made differentiation uh, from 1B to 1C. And also, Michael, along with that is that if you, we're not saying you're not essential if you're working from home. We're just saying this is to do more with the exposure potential. But the sad part about that, again, is that people working from home still have a chance to get exposed when they go to the grocery store. So so, uh, that's been the difficulty in this entire type of decision making. Gentlemen, the definitions of essential workers can be a little slippery and could be open to interpretation at times. How would you respond to someone saying, I'm a grocery worker, or I'm also in retail, and therefore I should be in this priority group? So, so the work group, um, the COVID-19 work group discussed this extensively because we don't, what we don't want is healthcare providers, frontline immunizers feeling like they have to police this. Uh, that's not at all what we want. And so we're not, we're not recommending that anybody have to produce identification or anything like that. Will there be people that will game the system? Absolutely. There are always people who game the system. That, that's just naturally it. But we're not asking pharmacists and other frontline healthcare providers to put themselves in that position. It's unsafe, and frankly, we don't have time for it. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think that was the discussion in the work group, and Steve may be able to add additional commentary about what happened at the ACIP table. The main thing we saw at ACIP was some of the public comments, the people that said things. We heard everything from the fact that a group of, of physician assistant students were not able to get, get the vaccine because they were excluded locally, even though that was included as a group that we said should actually be getting the vaccine in that group. So that decision was made locally. But we heard a lot of, of public comment from people saying, hey, you need to include us. We're this, we're this, we're this. And we, we all understand that. And all we can do is come up with a, a list of, of guidance. But again, that decision is going to be made at the local level. Uh, as a, one example I heard was Colorado and their ski lift operators, because the, that's an essential industry in their state. So um, again, a lot of this is going to be made locally with where we won't have, be able to, uh, we could just give guidance. Gentlemen, I'd like to conclude with one thing, and um, which is uh, stepping back a little bit. 
this has been an amazing couple of weeks in the uh, in the life of our American healthcare system and in pharmacy in particular. Um, what are your reflections right now? The uh, Moderna vaccine is uh, landing at uh, healthcare institutions and other uh, other organizations and in states, even as we speak. The Pfizer vaccine was a big moment. The arrival of that. Stepping back, what are you, what are your reflections as we uh, continue into this incredible phase in our history? Well, I, um, as I said, I've uh, not only been involved in the planning of this, but I've had the uh, great fortune of being able to be in clinic and actually watching the doses uh, go into pe people's arms. It's an emotional reaction. Um, it's amazing uh, how emotional people are when they receive this vaccine. I, I really have never seen anything like it. And I've been giving vaccine doses for better part of 25 years. Um, we have people come into the clinic that are just, you know, they're, they're bouncing. They're so excited. They're, they're ready to take their photo. They're excited to tell their friends that they're getting the vaccine. We've had people weeping uh, when they get the dose of the vaccine because they're just so uh, relieved that hope is kind of has gotten here. And of course, that I just don't I don't think I've ever seen anything like it, Frank. I mean, it's just uh, it the emotion that individuals feel when they get the vaccine is just it's, it's exhilarating as a healthcare provider administering the doses. It just makes me feel good. I mean, you you lay your head on the pillow at night and you feel like you did something that really made a difference in someone's life that day. Um, this is why I became a pharmacist. I wanted to have that feeling when I put my head on the pillow every night. So um, I, I reflect on this as just one of those moments in history that uh, I'll never forget. I will never forget this for, for the rest of my years. And I look forward to the fact that we as uh, pharmacists and other healthcare providers throughout the last year have stepped forward to take care of the patients and to take care of everything. This is going to be kind of a, a mess at the beginning because it's, it's an unknown. We don't know what we're going to step into. We don't know the situations we're going to follow. It'll get smoother as we go along, but I have complete confidence in the fact that uh, our healthcare providers can get out there and take care of this situation. It's, it's again, expect, expect hiccups in the road, expect conflicts, expect a lot. But again, I know that, uh, that we can handle that. So I just, I'm thankful for what everybody has been doing so far. I'm thankful for the people on the, the, the committees that have actually made decisions and given the guidance for what goes on. And uh, I, I think we're going to get through this. It's just going to take a little effort to get there. I will add though, that we, uh, we have had a lot of deaths and a lot of a lot of illnesses and it's, we're at a peak right now. So it's time to, to step up and go. But what's kind of encouraging to me is just to know that already 2.8 million doses have been shipped and uh, over 500,000 people have already received the vaccine in just a couple of days. So this is this is incredible. We are we're stepping up to the plate. And that seems like a good place to wrap this up. Michael Hogan, Stephen Foster, thank you again for joining us. My thank pleasure. You. And that's it for Locked on Pharmacy. For more information, visit the APHA's many resources on COVID-19 at pharmacist.com slash coronavirus. This is Frank Fortin for the American Pharmacists Association. Thank you for listening. This podcast has been brought to you by the American Pharmacists Association, the largest professional association of pharmacists in the United States. 